Welcome to No Librarians Allowed. No, we switched roles there. <laughs> what is happening? We are tentatively calling this episode The Guardian Teardown. <laughs> But actually, maybe the Guardian rise up because we we do appreciate the quality of thoughtful pieces that Guardian shares, not necessarily about libraries, but about technology world that lets us think about what's going on in our world. How do you get your news? Twitter. Lydia's shaking her head. Who knows? Not at all. (laughs) What's news? (laughs) Usually I will check on my phone, like just the little headlines of my phone. I don't even know where it's pulling that from, but it's like most popular trending stories right now. And then I will look at BBC app to see like the headlines. And then I will go to the guardian for my think pieces and blind date articles (laughs) where they rate each other. (laughs) And you know, important things like that. And it's amazing how I rely on Twitter and I'm sure many iPhone users, it comes to the screen. It's so easy, but I'm totally pray to whatever you know, Twitter pulls together and whatever people are sharing, right? So, Do you feel like you... I, I can't imagine that you would m- miss anything in that way, though, right? Oh, I'm sure I do. Really? I feel like everything that would be reported in the news would be talked about in some way on Twitter and it would come through. That's true. That's one thing I appreciate. I figure by the time it's on Twitter, it's big. And niche stories... I don't know. Do I have niche... I don't know. Now I'm just like, what do I even know about what's going on out there? So true. Ah! As I progress in this library career, which is not very far, but I, you know, I'm slowly aging and maturing. <laughs> I'm trying to rely on digests a lot. So oh. I've recently transitioned to into a new role at work, and uh, there's many, you know, organization-wide digests. I've subscribed to kind of. Some of my friends take offense to the term library industry, but essentially like American Library Association Digest, or maybe I'm part of a you know, subcommittee or some sort of interest group and subscribe to them. They say right now is the golden age of email newsletters. And no, <laughs> that seems so bizarre. Like, you th- how can it be? Email is such an old way of sharing information. But email marketing is one of the strongest channels, and I have marketing professional friends. Wow. And that makes sense because we're all busy. It comes to my inbox. I filter it out. I skim it. And then I read only when I either have that time. Usually it's like a Tuesday morning with my breakfast sandwich. I like to digest (laughs) both food and news and then get going. See, I like the email digest because when it comes to my work email, it's a library digest. So whatever. It is work related. But... It's that little break where I can be like, I'm not doing actual work, but I'm still working because I'm reviewing this digest. Absolutely. (laughs) So it still counts. See, those metaphors are so useful. Um, But yeah, it's funny how, you know, we're information professionals and yet there's way too much info for any one of us to assess critically. And frankly, I don't think we should worry about every, every piece of info. I don't know how journalists do it. They say librarians are active users of Twitter and journalists are some of the largest, Mm. um, I guess, active participants. You always see that, you know, the celebrities have the most followers, but I think journalists are actively using Twitter like every second. They're very high-strung people who need to know what's (laughs) happening. And they they just love that stream of information, right? Mm -hmm. It's literally a profession that relies on the most up-to-date and Twitter's a perfect match for that. Mm -hmm. So, makes sense. 
And then we take that and put it into the email digest? That's a good question. I think the stuff that comes to digest has is not necessarily the most recent. Mm-hmm. It's not breaking news. And in fact, I do trust it more if it's like a couple weeks old. So then you know it's had time to sort of marinate or sit on the servers <laughs> of the world. Before you digest it. Yeah, yeah. I just, I love everything about it. And the best part is you can't ignore it that week if you want to. So. Sure. The 40-day aged digest. That's right. That's right. <laughs> The kombucha, hey? Yeah. We want to go through an article by Marianne Wolf called Skim Reading is the New Normal. And it talks about uh, how when the reading brain skims text, we don't have time to grasp complexity, to understand another's feelings, or to perceive beauty. And ultimately, the author argues for a new literacy for the digital age. So, Carla, why did you share this article with me? Well, so in my normal Saturday doing of my chores and running around town, I was checking my news streams. So I was checking my what's trending and then I was checking my BBC and then I got to The Guardian. And I hesitate often about, I don't always like to go to the articles that are about like e-reading is bad for you and reading online is messing up your brain and like your children are going to be horrible monsters because they have no empathy. Or even just the the conversation that has been for so long that's just like, I like books. Like, I like traditional books. You can't take those away from me. It's like, the okay, smell. It's fine. Like, I don't care, really. <laughs> like, you know, the, the conversation has to evolve past that. So I liked talking about skim reading, but I'm also just really into this critical thinking and empathy and what does that mean? And so what does science tell us about the difference between these two mediums? So, so she's the author of a book called Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. And I'm not sure if this article, I'm assuming it's similar to what she talks about in her book, not totally sure, but she gives different examples of um, some different studies that have been done by, it seems like psychologists and people doing neuroscience and basically talking about the effects of reading on a screen and how it's changing people's abilities to read in print, but also what we gain in print form uh, or what we have gained as like a species from reading in print and then what is potentially being lost in that. So basically what the argument is is that humans' brains changed 6,000 years ago. The invention of print language created new circuits of neurons in human brains. And some of the effects are that people are able to, through reading or deep reading, people can um, handle reasoning so they can do critical analysis. They can empathize with other people. And they basically are, are able to handle and process large amounts of information. So... That all comes from written text. Um, Switching over to reading on a cell phone or reading on any kind of screen, the endless scroll, that kind of thing, the human brain doesn't have the opportunity to engage in those same processes. So different neurons are firing, I'm guessing, is what's happening. And what they're finding is that when they compare people who have read something on a tablet or on their phone versus reading the same text in a book, comprehension goes down and they're making arguments that things like empathy go down, critical analysis goes down because all we're doing is sort of skimming. People who have spent most of their time reading or even have practiced reading 
in like the F classic F pattern. They're now finding that people are doing that with texts, so even with published books. So that's transferring over to Consumption, consumption of yeah. print media, yeah. Exactly. And there's a prof at San Jose State University who, I guess, I mean, it's skim reading in this mm -hmm. F or now even Z pattern, Z pattern so, yeah. which is like so common that it now has a term. Yep. So what the argument is, is that the article says, when the reading brain skims like this, it reduces time allocated to deep reading processes. In other words, we don't have time to grasp complexity, to understand others' feelings, to perceive beauty, and to create thoughts of the reader's own. Something else that I found really interesting was they talked about the importance of um, like temporality for human beings and knowing one's place in time and space. And that's something that's possible with a physical book. Like I can read a line, I can skip forward three pages, I can go back, I can compare things. And that's not possible with the endless scroll of something that's just on a web page or in an ebook. And that has a detrimental effect that affects our memory, it affects our ability to analyze and reason because we can't be referring to and comparing facts and the, the chronological timeline gets mangled. So it's harder for us to even comprehend what exactly happened uh, in a text, but also in order to kind of process all of that information and then go back and forth to compare and really engage with the work in that way. So we, we lose that ability. For some reason, this is one of the first articles that hasn't seemed like scary and kind of doom and gloom about this fact, because what she also says at the end is, you know, it's not necessarily about that we need to like stop reading anything online and that skimming is terrible. It's just that we can cultivate these two things. So what she says is we need to cultivate a new kind of brain, a biliterate reading brain that's capable of the deepest forms of thought in either digital or traditional medium. So I don't know that I totally agree with that, but maybe more what she's saying is we need to continue developing and strengthening this traditional reading brain and that, that neural path that's there, while at the same time we are able to strengthen our skimming reading brain in order to get the best of what we can out of online texts. In many ways, that's easier said than done. And many of these articles, even large pieces, often just end with one paragraph. Mm. So sure, that sounds great. How do we do it? <laughs> but I, I agree with you, Carla. I think this article at least brought in a variety of different research. It's also evidence-based. Now there's a larger body of research, but also a large variety of tools. It may be possible, but it's also kind of a tall order as well. Mm -hmm. I also wonder, from the digital humanities side, I know there's... So each of these professors that they cite is a um, specialist in, in their field, and you know some you approach it from kind of cognitive psychology and some from sociology. Obviously, LIS has strengths, um, but I also remember encountering specialists in digital humanities who try to mimic or bring in those functions of what a book does, so things like annotation and that placement or orienting within a text onto the digital. And can e-readers begin to approximate or at least mirror some of those habits that we may have with a print uh, while still allowing us things like browsing, quick scrolling, selection of menus, right? I like that because you bring up, again, some of the advantages of, of reading online, right? So there are things that we can gain from moving away from a print environment to, or from print text to online text. 
It's yes and, not either or. That's right. This particular author did bring up Sherry Turkill's work, and (laughs) as important as she is, a part of me is like, okay, enough already. Like, we get it. We're alone together. too much, (laughs) Turkill. I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. No, I I think it's really important. And, you know, she's been a huge voice in the late 90s and early 2000s. But it also shows how much richer and and very nuanced this field is. Like, it's it's not fair to say to teachers, uh, don't let kids use digital media because they also need it in the contemporary world. And so many tools are no longer available in print. So is how do we make it work for the new generation of learners? They use this term even like the advanced adult reader because we've had practice to develop that critical thought. What will happen to us? <laughs> will we lose it? Well, then, uh, Yeah, so I read this article over like probably over the course of at least four hours, reading it broken up over a period of time while I was doing 10 other things and texting people at the same time and that's what it was. Her yeah. comment about undergraduate students avoiding large novels is not anything new. I mean, <laughs> I was that undergraduate of novels. Course. Why did I not go into 18th century French literature? First of all, boring. Contemporary fiction is short for a reason, because life is complex and bizarre. Yeah. But I also appreciated the discussion, you know, how you framed the importance of temporality for human learning. So obviously there's the actual orienting of ourselves on the page. And it's true, we all remember, oh, this part was at the beginning of the book, or it was somewhere here, or even within a page, like that one quote was here. We all do this, right? We mentally kind of map the content of the text. But reading this article, I was thinking about the importance of knowing where we are in time and space, even as learners, right? Thinking of myself as a learner, as a human being in time, and revisiting the same places and the things I thought at the time and what I know now. And similarly with learning. I think it's true physical learning objects like books, and there are others, right? So puzzles, or we've just posted our Makerspace episode the importance of that tangible in learning. Like, I feel like I keep harping about it every episode, but it's something that I'm facing professionally and I guess personally, just thinking about the importance, right, of a space and time. Well, guess what? We are bound as humans in that, so it, it makes sense that we evolve to use that. Like, so much of our neurons are probably dedicated to that. Mm-hmm. And I just, like, I, I love those discussions. I think so much of early internet researcher you know writing ignored the body ignored the ways that we actually are human and how we retain so i'm glad now it's a little bit more nuanced more real well and i think that's actually kind of hitting the nail on the head as to why i liked this article a lot too because the physicality of what is actually happening to your brain as it changes and a lot of times I think that writers on this topic just kind of fall into a metaphor on both ends, like the screen, the media, right? you know, that's kind of the one void. And then the other void is sort of the mind and the person's soul or whatever's happening that is being impacted by their interaction with this void of screen time. But both are equally vacuous in that metaphor, right? Like, I don't really know what's happening to this kid. Like, okay, he's, I don't know, something is happening to him, but I don't really know what it is. Now he's becoming angrier. Like, I don't get it. But for some reason, explaining it in this way that's like, okay, look, there are neurons that are changing. 
those patterns are changing inside your brain because of these particular types of technology, whether it's a book or whether it's reading on the screen. And for some reason, that just didn't annoy me at all. And I was like, yes, the impact of technology on a person's neurological pathways and their brain on their physical body, changing it and its chemical reactions. This is somehow the conversation that I need to be having about the impacts of technology on members of society. So like there was another article today in Guardian about are people from Nordic countries actually happier? Hmm. So apparently, even though they rate highly on the world happiness scales or Mm -hmm. whatever those are, um, there's large numbers, especially of young people in these countries who rate themselves as suffering or struggling. Like, that's intense, right? And then they kind of tried to talk about different reasons for it. So so in Sweden, in France, in Norway, they're rating themselves higher on this index of suffering and struggling. And so they think, like, perfectionism. They talk about social media as having an impact mm. and wanting to interact with the people who are having a great time, but they're just stuck at home alone looking at their phone. So... I appreciate that kind of conversation too, because I think it's important to look at those kind of impacts of a piece of technology on, on society and on someone's personal psyche. But something about this one going into actually changing a person's brain, I like more. <laughs> Not that it matters what I think, but for some reason that kind of conversation made this a lot more palatable rather than seeming so kind of doom and gloom and apocalyptic about what's happening with these these two voids that we don't really understand like the screen and the and the mind. I love it the two solitudes the two. <laughs> In many ways it's not a guardian teardown. This one is actually an appreciation society. We could go on to the guardian teardown because there's been a few <laughs> Several articles about Elon Musk. Not that we care about him necessarily that much. He's just more emblematic of a certain type of tech bro. I just like, what is up with Elon Musk this week? I don't know. He is everywhere this week. Just doing crazy, crazy dumb shit. So one article is in The Guardian and the other one is in The Atlantic. The Guardian one is about Elon Musk's 120-hour work week and whether it will stop us worshipping workaholism, you know, with his drive for efficiency and scheduling his day to the five-minute increments and essentially, I guess, being emblematic of that CEO who lives for work and maximizes every moment premise of this is, yeah, we're talking about Elon Musk as representative of all these CEOs and the sort of the general workplace environment of tech companies and Silicon Valley and all that stuff. So it's normal now to lead this kind of Elon Musk lifestyle where basically you're spending days at a time at work. You're not going home and you're working maximum hours on a project, especially if there's some kind of deadline. And apparently he has five kids like who knew that that was a thing like this idea that your workplace has built this entire environment to sustain you as a worker and they have a place for you to sleep there they have a place for you to eat there three meals a day they're open 24 hours you can go to the gym you never have to leave 
That's kind of like the, the Dave Akers book, The Circle. Like you can just live your entire life at the company and it's, that's what's celebrated. Elon Musk has kind of had a few missteps in the last couple of weeks. So he has gotten in a fight with one of the guys who rescued the Thai kids from the cave for some reason. He <laughs> announced that he was going to take his company private over Twitter and now he's being like, investigated and possibly charged for doing that because he can't just say that he's just not had a great week so it's kind of this like is he breaking down is this going to be a sign that like people can't actually continue working this way we're pushing them too hard is this going to be the sign of a shift in the tech industry overall to go back to sort of a more humane way of working um, so that's just kind of what they're talking about in this article he apparently breaks his time down into five minute intervals every day is he writing that down in a diary? Like, or does someone else do that for him? Like, how much time does he take actually, like, writing down five minutes and what goes into each of those? Exactly. Minutes? No. Like, it's... Does he have a giant day timer that's just, like, <laughs> huge? Does he prefer a written day timer or does he, like, I don't know. We are very into the operations of this concept. Yeah. How does he make this work, this five minute day? Anyway, so it was just kind of talking about this, you know, is this going to be the, the sign of a culture shift in Silicon Valley? Is he like the first one to crack? Is mm -hmm. that, And so they're talking about like how he's tweeting erratically after he's gone home after working several days in a row and the only way he can fall asleep is taking an Ambien. And then that's like Roseanne Barr level of like poor judgment tweeting right, and right. then bad things happen. <laughs> right. So, you know, kind of recognizing the dangers, I guess, of that kind of lifestyle as though bad tweets are the only danger of that lifestyle. The Atlantic had one that is called, what if a female CEO acted like Elon Musk? And I guess he did an interview with the New York Times where he like admitted how burned out he was feeling and how vulnerable he was. And it says Musk choked up multiple times and like started to cry. And this is a great quote. The first hint of trouble came in May when Musk berated investors on a Tesla earning call for asking boring bonehead questions. <laughs> yeah. So like basically what they're saying is, OK, you know, they say self-reflection, vulnerability, acknowledgement of the effects of work on one's well-being. These are admirable qualities in a leader of any company. However, except if you're a woman, except if you're a woman, in which case you are going to be like damned if you do, damned if you don't. So if you pulled an Elon Musk kind of performance and you were teary eyed about over like the work life balance that you were facing and how how much personal stress you're under at the expense of like, you know, because of your job and on and on and on, you're going to be lambasted for being too weak. Whereas on the other hand, if you are just a machine who can work for five days in a row and never see your five kids and you like ambient tweet out, then you're going to be seen as the overly harsh. How do you even describe it? Yeah, well, Marissa Mayer faced some of that, right? Because I think she brought her baby to work and... You know, she was a cold mother, very calculating, and she also scheduled, you know, her pee breaks to the five-minute mark or whatever. So it's true. Is she not exemplifying that commitment to the company and being very rational? And, you know, she would say, I really enjoy this work. But no, she's a cold, calculating, heartless woman. And also, you know, if I said, I don't want to deal with these boring bonehead questions, I would never see the light of day. I'd never be invited mm -hmm. to a meeting again, right? So it's... Yeah. You'd be so mean. Why are you being so mean? <laughs> 
But here, no, self-reflection and vulnerability are admirable signs of a true leader. And right? like, yes, of course they are. But if a man does it, then it's fine. And that's what will change the culture. So if a woman gets in that to, into that position of power and is self-reflective and, you know, expressing her vulnerabilities, well, too bad. That means you're a weak leader. But as soon as Elon Musk is like, oh, I've had such a rough time, which I'm not belittling his rough time. It sounds like it's been, I would not want to live that life. But it takes a man in order to make that acceptable. He's not the first to go through this. And so the question is if Silicon Valley culture will change. I highly doubt it. The pressures of capitalism to produce companies and products will remain. This may be a fad or we're a little bit more aware of it. And, you know, journalists and media may be taking it a little bit more seriously. Women have been saying it for years. And there's a reason why they leave such environments and why Silicon Valley is so bro-heavy. Because, yeah, young men will sacrifice everything and sleep under their desk for the company, but women have other priorities. So I highly doubt that the culture will change. I keep seeing all these articles about, you know, millennials and their preferences. And some of it may be true. It's just like as a generation... Uh, or a culture to have different values that actually may be good for everybody at all levels of the technology workforce. There's a lot of unhappy people. So uh, feminism benefits everybody. I have yet to read one of those articles about millennials. It's like, oh, selfish millennials, things they want, and not be like, of course they want this. I want this. Everybody should have this. <laughs> everybody wants like adequate vacation time. People would like flexible hours in which to work. People would like to have one-on-ones with the boss and the CEO of the company. They like to be involved with companies that have values that match their own. Like, duh, of course they do, because everybody wants that. So I'm always like, why are we so down on this? It's just like those tweets. They're more like ironic meta tweets about Alexandra Octavia Cortez, 28-year-old to win a congressional oh, yeah, seat yeah, yeah. in... Yeah. Or she's a candidate, or she did win she, a seat won, yeah. in New York, in Queens, or the Bronx. Um, and like <laughs> we need to check our Twitter, we can't remember. <laughs> we're, we're not very good on details and facts, but you know who we're talking about. You know that person, you could look it up, it's mine. <laughs> and every tweet that I see, it's like, uh, she pushes for living wages, benefits, vacation, and health care. How dare she? What a monster. <laughs> oh, Elon, maybe you will take us all to that place. What's upsetting is that there will be some coverage, but truly questioning the culture may not happen. Okay, so with this discussion that does not have a lot to do with libraries, but obviously... Show- oh, yeah. Libraries. Well, I mean, we are oftentimes large companies. We have CEOs. That's a thing that we could talk about. I am proud so far that overall that culture has not infiltrated libraries, although I'm sure it exists everywhere. I certainly see our American colleagues. They seem to work all the time, and and I realize that's just also part of the American context, Um, this badge of honor to mm-hmm. you know always be thinking about work and sending emails and while you know it's admirable to have a job have a career in a profession that we care about we're all human beings and we need to live our lives so we're not going to bring in necessarily vocational awe I think we talked about it on episode when Sam Popovich was here but there's reasons and there's ways that this kind of 
pressure infiltrates our our work and our in our profession but overall here in Canada I've been finding it okay for now but I guess we have to be careful about how we frame mm-hmm. you know our work and what's important yeah and I I think it depends on the on the organization and the people in the organization I'm sure that we would get examples from people at Canadian libraries where I don't know what else could we talk about with libraries like reading and stuff I don't know to what degree we receive feedback and comments from parents about screen time and value of reading. And, you know, I've certainly seen some parents who say that library time is book time. But even reading that article about skim reading, I was happy that collections is still such a huge use and we're still printing and consuming kids' chapter books. They're still a thing because how important they are for children, right? So overall, the doom and gloom, the the threats of paperless library has not happened, right? So, and and one area is children's publishing is actually quite strong, so. Mm -hmm. We wish you well, Elon. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. Check us out on SoundCloud and iTunes and... Google Play. Google Play. Okay, bye. Bye.